All right, well, welcome guys. My name's Tom. If we haven't met yet, I have the privilege of providing leadership to the church. I'm on eldership with Herrick. Yes. Um, yeah, really quickly, we are uh, in the middle, not in the middle, like we kind of just started, we're week six of our series called Jesus Is. Um, and this has been, honestly, for me, uh, a really rich time. We're going through the Gospel of John. And John was basically Jesus' closest friend, okay? And this gospel is unique because um, it has a perspective that maybe the other gospels don't really have. It was the last of the gospels that was written. Um, <clears throat> and it just had, there's beauty and depth in John, just per, this is my opinion. There's beauty and depth in John that is just kind of, in my opinion, like I said, unparalleled in the other gospel accounts. We're going through this series because we want to see Jesus more clearly. One of the things that we've been talking about is we want Jesus to be the center of everything that we do as a church. Like Everything. For that to happen, we want to be able to see him as clearly as possible. So that's why we're going through John. That's why the series is called Jesus Is, because we want to see him clearly. What is him? What are his attributes, his characteristics? Um, We're going to be, we're actually jumping into John chapter 2 today. Um, You can go ahead and flip there if you have your Bible. While you're flipping there, um, being in pastoral ministry means that I have been to a million and a half weddings. Um, I've been to so many weddings. I, I, thankfully, I enjoy weddings. Um, they really are special, beautiful days. Um, the first year and a half, two years of the first church plant in San Diego, follow me, the first year and a half of the first church plant in San Diego, um, Ebony and I, we, kind of crazy story, but we, church planning, there's, there's never any money, so it's just kind of a crazy season, right? So we were just hustling to see this church get off the ground, taking jobs wherever we could. I was leading worship. I was, um, Ebony was, a, she was doing photography, so she would shoot weddings and stuff, right? And I would go and be her second shooter, that kind of thing. But I share that with you to tell you, like, being in pastoral ministry means I'm at a lot of weddings, and then now when my wife is photographing weddings, I'm at weddings all the time, Okay. So I have seen some crazy, crazy stuff go down at weddings. Like, I've seen bridezillas. They are real. Um, I've actually seen brides that are really, really, really gracious and kind when, like, their wedding party doesn't show up to the wedding. Like, I've seen crazy things happen. But I think probably the craziest thing that I experienced at a wedding was actually a wedding that I was performing. Like, I was the officiant at the wedding, right? And it was at some dear friends of ours. And uh, this is probably maybe two years ago, uh, yeah, two and a half, three years ago. And long story short, I was really ill. I'm supposed to officiate this wedding. There is no backup. It's not like there's like a second string quarterback waiting in the wings to go on. It's like, hey, dude, you committed to doing our wedding. And I woke up that day, like, guys, so ill. Like, we're, I'm going to offend you, but like, stuff's coming out of both ends. Okay, like that kind of ill where I can't, st- like, I can't control it. It's like, I am really sick. So like I put my suit on, I'm praying, I'm going to this wedding, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do, uh, I'm gonna do this ceremony and then I'm literally gonna go straight home. Um, bummed I can't celebrate with dear friends, but I, please, Lord Jesus, don't let me vomit or crap my pants in front of these people. <laughs> because it, they had this wedding like in the middle of this field, it was beautiful, but like, no joke, the nearest restroom was like 200 yards away. Okay, so can you imagine, I'm like, dearly beloved, like, hold on, like, sprinting, like, ah! So I'm praying, like, please, God, don't let something really embarrassing happen, okay? I'm going through the ceremony, and then all of a sudden, 
like, no, I'm kidding. I didn't, I didn't, nothing happened. <clears throat> Thankfully, I got through it. Like tragedy was avoided. Um, and I remember it was funny because there was the, the half of the churches there and their friends and family. Like there was a bunch of people there that I know know and love me. And I could see they were like, they knew kind of how I was feeling. And I could see that were like watching me. They wanted to watch the couple, but they were like watching me like, is he gonna, is he gonna let loose? <laughs> like, is something gonna happen? So I knew they were praying for me. I knew they were caring for me, but there's still a couple people that were like laughing because they knew I was like, I'm squeezing every orifice of my body, just trying to read my Bible and like not have something terrible happen. Thankfully, tragedy was avoided. I tell you that story because today's passage we're going to go through, um, it's about a wedding. And it's about, uh, it involves a wedding where things could have gone, and like in my case, things could have gone really, really wrong. But thankfully, tragedy was avoided in this wedding uh, as well. But if it wasn't for Jesus being there, if it wasn't for Jesus being present, and Jesus in his compassionate, loving, yet poetic way, if he didn't intervene, things would have gone really south. We're going to talk about that wedding today, okay? So go ahead, John chapter 2. Um, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us before we actually read the scriptures. Um, so would you join me in prayer? God in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that you're near right now. Like you couldn't be closer than you are right now. Uh, you are unchanging. You're loving. You're kind. I pray that you would show us, Holy Spirit, show us more about Jesus. Show us more about Jesus and show us more about ourselves. The good, the bad, and the ugly that is still wrapped and covered in the love of Jesus. Thank you, God. Be with us. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. I'm in the English Standard Version, the ESV. So if you don't have that with you, if you have a different Bible translation, the words will be up here for us, though, okay? John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother then said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jugs there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so this morning, um, I probably say this a lot, but it really, it really applies to this passage. There is so much depth in this passage. There is so much beauty in this passage. I'm not gonna get everything in one message, but what I am gonna do is I'm gonna focus in on three things that we see here in this passage, okay? The first is this. If you're taking notes, this is what you want to write down. We're going we're to talk about the wedding. 
We're going to talk about the wine, and we're going to talk about the sign. Okay? The wedding, the wine, and the sign. Let's jump in. Let's talk about the wedding. Okay, I want you to guess the average cost of, of a, a wedding in Southern California, not including honeymoon. I did like research. I wanted to figure this out. This is where you participate. This is where you're not quite. 50000 This is like Price is Right. This is great. Yeah, $1. I like you, Kevin. Okay, so we have, hold on. We have 50000 We have 23, 25, 30, 20. Okay, we're close. Okay, the average cost of a wedding in Southern California is $37,000. Okay? Uh, I also ran the numbers, the per capita income in Southern California, that means what each person, the average that each person kind of makes in a year is $30,000. So you have $30,000 versus $37,000. Now, weddings today, right, they're, they're a one-day one kind of big party. You have the, the ceremony, right? Then you have the reception and dinner and dancing and fun, all that stuff, right? Here's the thing. In first century Jewish culture, they did weddings very differently than we do, okay? Their wedding celebrations lasted like weeks or like a week or more. So seven days. Now, I was thinking about this. And I, I just want to kind of talk about this for a moment, okay? Like really quickly, I have to say, I don't believe that we celebrate enough. I believe in our culture, we're overworked. We're busy a lot. I do not believe that we celebrate near enough. Did you know that the entire Jewish calendar was structured around reasons to celebrate? That's what provided the structure, the skeleton of their calendar. Opportunities and reasons to celebrate. Celebration was an incredibly important facet of being the people of God. It seems to have kind of changed and altered a little bit through the generations. Week-long celebrations versus a day, right? But here's the truth. Like Christians, Christians have more to celebrate than anybody else on the face of the earth. Guys, we should, be, we should be known for throwing the best parties. Not the lamest parties, the best parties. Like, because we have more to celebrate than anyone. And taking that celebration serious, I believe, is, has been God's intention for the people of God from the beginning. <clears throat> like, think about it. What if the opinion of our non-Christian neighbors was something like this? What if their opinion was like, yeah, I don't really believe what those Christians do, but they like really love each other and they really party. Like what if that was the, what if instead of like, you know, what if instead of hypocrisy and and being judgmental and being fake, what if we were known for being people who radically loved each other and, and celebrated, who partied? When I say party, I don't mean debauchery. Like, don't mix those two. I think it's like a, like, I've said that before. Like, I'll tell my kids, like, yeah, we're going to party. And I'll hear somebody else be like, you tell your kids you're going to party. I'm like, no, we're celebrating. Like, it's not involving debauchery. Like, we're, we're partying. We're having fun. Like, we're celebrating the goodness of God. What if our, um, what if the opinion of our neighbors was something different? We have more to celebrate than anybody else. Friends, <clears throat> every good thing that we have is undeserved. 
Like, think about that for just a moment. If I got what I deserved, I'd be dead. We have more to celebrate than anyone. Let me ask you this, just really quickly, pastorally, as your friend, as your brother, how much of a priority is celebration in your life? And I don't don't say that to make you feel guilty. I say that to hopefully, like, we can readdress our calendars and go, like, we actually probably should do this. How much of... How much of a priority is celebration in your life? I mean, maybe the better question would be, do you actually spend time celebrating? Like not just obligatory going to the birthday party, but like at a heart level. That's what I'm talking about. Like do we actually celebrate at a heart level the goodness of God, his gifts, his kindness, his provision, his blessings? If you're anything like me, it's so much easier to focus on the negative than it is the positive. Like being a pastor, for whatever reason, I feel like it's kind of like being the president. And not, here's what I mean by this. The criticism is like off the charts. It's like for every, every kind word, um, like Stu and Sarah, where you, or, Stu, you're here. Stu will come up to me after the message and just like affirm me and, 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 and like even, yeah, he just says kind things. But like most of the time, it's like, oh my gosh, my emails and the conversation, it's just so much criticism and just very little, it's just the reality of it, right? But it's so easy to grab a hold of that. And if I live in that place, if, and I'm sure the same is true with you. Moms, there's so much pressure on you. Singles, there's so much pressure on you. All the things you don't have, all the things you're not, all that BS, frankly. <clears throat> if we focus on, frankly, the lies of the enemy that would distract us from the love of God and our identity in Jesus, it's gonna destroy us. But the reality is the celebration's kind of like a weapon, It's a weapon that we have to battle the lies of the enemy because we get to rehearse and enjoy and celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. Are you tracking with this idea? Great, awesome. I love how vocal you guys are this morning. This is wonderful. So here's my thing. Like I genuinely pray that as a church that we would be people who prioritizing, pausing our busy lives to truly celebrate the goodness of God. So whether it's a birthday or a job promotion, or a wedding, or a graduation, or uh, an anniversary of, of any kind, like any of that. Let's be people who give ourselves to celebrating God's goodness, of enjoying his blessings, okay? I want that for my kids. I want to train them in that, okay? Really quick, back to the wedding. So, Southern California spends on average uh, $37,000 on a wedding. But here's the thing. Weddings were honestly an even bigger deal for the first century Jews. Like, they celebrated weddings differently than we do. One scholar says this, quote, Ancient and traditional cultures put far more emphasis on the family and the community than on the individual. Do you hear that? Family, community over the individual. Meaning in life was not not to be, I'm sorry, meaning in life was to be found not in individual achievement, but in being a good husband or wife, son or daughter, father or mother. The purpose of a marriage was not primarily the happiness of the two individuals, but instead to bind the community together and to raise the next generation. In other words, listen to this, the purpose of marriage was the good of the commonwealth. The bigger, the stronger, and the more numerous the families of a town, the better its economy, the greater the military security, the more everyone flourished. And this meant that weddings and wedding feasts were a far bigger deal than they are today. Each wedding was a public feast for the entire town because marriage was about the whole community, not merely the couple. 
At the same time, it was also the biggest event in the personal life of both the bride and the groom. This was the day they came of age and became full adult members of their society. It is no surprise then that ancient wedding feasts went on for a week at least. Friends, weddings were a really big deal for them. A really big deal. So Jesus attends this wedding, right? You get a picture, it's a big deal. The whole town's there. It's, it's, it's massive. It's for the, the benefit of the community. It's, it's, it's them, the, the, the couple stepping into adulthood to be contributing members of the community. All that, so all this beautiful stuff. Jesus attends this wedding, right? His mom's there. His disciples are there. And then Jesus' mom comes to him to let him know that the wine has run out. Let's talk about the wine. Um, I, actually, I want to talk about alcohol in general for just a second. Um, everybody has different views on alcohol. I want to be very, very sensitive here, okay? I want to emphatically say the Bible clearly teaches that drunkenness is a sin. Like, couldn't be more clear. Some of the most painful forms of brokenness in the lives of people that I love dearly are a result of drunkenness. So for many, alcohol can be associated with a lot of pain, okay? I want to be really, really sensitive here. Um, Sexual sin is kind of similar. Actually, it's very similar, um, especially when it comes to abuse. Here's what I mean by that. Um, It can kind of be approached in the same way as alcohol is in, in this regard. Just as alcohol can be associated with pain and brokenness, sex can be associated with pain and brokenness. But here's the thing, guys. And just hear me say this, okay? God created both of them. And he created both of them good. The truth is they're both good gifts from God. But they are gifts that come with certain caveats, okay? Very clearly in scripture, right? Like sex, for instance. It's exclusively for a husband and his wife. That's what sex is for, nothing else. And when I say sex, I'm knocking every type of sex. Certain caveat, right? Same thing with alcohol. Alcohol is to be used in moderation because drunkenness is forbidden. But friends, both sex and alcohol, they're gifts from the Lord. He created them. He designed them. And he designed them for the pleasure of his people. They're good gifts. So I just want to take just a moment. I want to address kind of our church's stance on alcohol, Okay. I think it's a relevant thing to talk about. And frankly, some things have kind of come up. Nothing crazy or anything, but it's come up recently like, hey, what's your stance? People have noticed we have wine for communion. They've noticed at different church functions that there's beer or wine, those kinds of things. I want to just talk about it quick. So when it comes to alcohol or sex or frankly, anything, like we want to be a church who's submitted to the authority of scripture. Like the Bible is the authority, not my opinion, not the opinion of people that went before me. What does the scripture say? We want to be people who are submitted to the authority of Scripture. And what we see in the New Testament is an overwhelming, like, assault and attack, roundhouse kicks on two things. Rebellion, which is basically disobeying God, it's sin, and religion. What religion is, religion says that your performance, the things that you do and the things that you don't do, your performance, right, Religion says that your performance is what makes you right with God. It's what makes you acceptable. What religion does is it it pays a lot of attention to the external. 
what happens on the outside, what other people see. The problem, though, is that it pays very little to no attention on what happens on the inside. A religious mind pays very little attention to the motivations of your heart, like the why you're doing what you're doing. But here's the thing. The internal motivation of your heart is what determines what, whether or not something is sinful. It's the only thing. It's, it's what your motive is. So for instance, I've used this example a dozen times. You guys have heard me say this. Forgive me if I'm repeating it, but I think it's a really, really helpful one. Let's say that after gathering, you and I go to lunch. Okay, we're going to catch up. I know you guys are laughing. <clears throat> we're going to go to lunch, and I buy you lunch. You might be like, oh man, Tom, that's really kind. That's a generous thing to do. On the outside, it seems like a nice, kind thing to do. But listen to me. If my motive in buying you lunch is to get you to like me more or to get your approval, like, I didn't buy you lunch. I didn't serve you and love you. It was for me. It wasn't for you. It was selfish in nature. Something that seems wonderful on the outside has disgusting, selfish motives. I'm using you for approval, but it's dressed up like generosity. I've done this my whole life. It's disgusting. God, please free me from the, approval, the idol of the approval of people. But do you see how the difference here? Like, what happens externally is important, but what's more important is what's motivating your heart. Sin is determined by the motivation of your heart, the why, okay? It's the motivation of your heart that determines whether something is sinful. One of the things that I've noticed in the church is kind of like an, a religious approach to alcohol, to be honest, And honestly, this is like a super new thing in the church. Like this didn't happen 50 years ago. It wasn't a thing. And the position goes something like this, like Christians should not consume alcohol in public or they shouldn't have alcohol present because someone could get drunk. Now, let me just say this, okay? And, and, And hear me out. That's a, that's a dangerously religious strategy. Because with any religious behavior, the result is always pride. Religion always results in pride. It always results in me thinking I'm better than someone because I either do the things that they don't or I don't do the things that they do. Do you see this idea of religion? Yes? Okay. <clears throat> when we're religious, we inevitably look down on others. So here's the thing. Not only is a strategy of forbidding alcohol religious, but oftentimes it's dangerously hypocritical too. Like I've heard Christians say like, well, yeah, like it's not sinful to have alcohol, but it's not wise either. Guys, we don't apply that same strategy to food. Like if we go out to lunch again after gathering, like should we not have food around because someone could overeat? Like, gluttony is a real thing. It's sinful. <laughs> I mean, literally, I, I, I think I did this like two days ago. I ate too much. Like, it wasn't seconds. It was thirds and dessert. But again, the external, it does not determine the sin. It's the internal motivation of my heart. The reality of my heart was I, was, I really wanted comfort. And I was looking to my taste buds to provide them for me because I don't believe that Jesus, the comfort that Jesus provides is even work, is anywhere close as enough to like cheesecake. I know it's silly, but like, I mean, okay, here's another one that gets me, right? <clears throat> About this being a strategy that's like dangerously hypocritical on top of being religious. <clears throat> when your job gives you a raise, do you turn down the raise and pay because you might get more greedy? 
Like, I mean, think about it. Like, more money means more opportunity for greed. More, more opportunity for selfishness and hoarding resources for yourself at the expense of other people. Greed. <clears throat> like, I don't think I've ever seen someone do that. If I saw a guy be like, hey, I know I just got offered like $20,000 more a year on my salary, but you know what, boss? I'm going to decline because I don't, I don't want to be tempted to be greedy. I've never seen that happen. But we do that with things like alcohol. And I'm not like a huge proponent for alcohol. I think it's a gift from the Lord, but this isn't like, I'm not trying to push alcohol on you. I just want to be clear with this, okay? Here's my point. Alcohol, like many other things, which is one example, alcohol, like many other things, is a gift from God. So here's what I want as your pastor, if if I'm your pastor, here's what I want. Let's not be religious and look down on others who are able to enjoy alcohol responsibly as the gift that it is. And let's also not be rebellious and engage in sin by being drunk. Let's be New Testament Christians who battle against religion and battle against rebellion who live in kind of the radical middle of enjoying and celebrating and worshiping God. And let me just say this. I'm going to move on. I know I'm taking up a lot of time here, but like one final thing. Listen, if being around alcohol causes you to stumble, like as in like if you're near it, you're going to sinfully drink. Like if you can't help yourself, please tell us please say something. You're not going to be judged. You're not going to be put down. You're not going to be belittled. Like we we desire, we would gladly support you and love you by refraining and by keeping it completely out of your presence. Please say something, okay? That's about it. Okay, any questions about alcohol? I'd love to talk with you about it, but let's keep going. Okay, so this wedding, right? This wedding that Jesus is at, it runs out of wine. The wine had alcohol in it. Now, let's get back to actually talking about the wine. Uh, I believe that of all the cities in Southern California, uh, we are the most qualified city to talk about this wine. So, come on. Now, depending on how much you personally value wine, running out of wine at a wedding might not seem like that big of a deal, but it was a huge deal. I cannot overemphasize it enough, and that's actually, let me me read this to you. Uh, Kent Hughes, epic biblical scholar, says this, I do not think we can overemphasize the distress in Mary's words in verse three, they have no more wine. (laughs) In the Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential. Not so the guests could drink to excess, but because it was a symbol of exhilaration and celebration. It was of such great importance that a lawsuit could be instituted if no wine was provided. (laughs) Could you imagine that? Those who were behind the scenes at that little wedding in Cana were shattered by this breakdown in hospitality. Childhood dreams of the ideal wedding were about to dissolve in a nightmare. Listen to this. The drama of our text is very real. To the Jewish mind, wine symbolized joy. In fact, listen to this, the rabbis had a contemporary saying, without wine, there is no joy. (laughs) We could very well translate Mary's words, they have no joy. (laughs) At this precious time of life that that should be filled with everything good, joy had run out. Guys, the wine running out, believe it or not, was a huge deal. It was a very, very big deal. 
uh, all throughout the Old Testament, <clears throat> wine was associated with joy. Not drunkenness. Wine was associated with joy. So the wine being gone meant the joy was gone. Everybody at the wedding, if the moment that, that, that wed- the people that, that, that are at that party, they find out the wine's gone, it's going to negative, have a huge negative effect, not just on the bride and the groom, but on the entire town. Culturally speaking, I know it's kind of difficult for us. We'd be like, oh, the wine's out, okay. But legitimately for them, it was a big deal. <clears throat> now, like I said, there's so much depth and beauty in this passage. We could spend three, four more weeks going through this, but I want to share one example um, with you quickly. It was the bridegroom's responsibility to supply, to provide the wine at a wedding, okay? <clears throat> so if you're a guest at an ancient Jewish wedding, you relied on the bridegroom for your wine. You looked to the, to the bridegroom to supply your joy. Now I have to ask you this question, again, pastoral moment, right? <clears throat> Who or what do you look to? Who or what do you look to to supply your joy to the wine of your soul? These are the million-dollar questions, guys. Listen, if it's anything or anyone other than Jesus, eventually what happens at this wedding will happen to you. If you look to anything or anyone other than Jesus to supply you with joy, eventually it runs out. It might satisfy your thirst for joy for a season, but at best, it's a temporary joy. It's gonna run out. Like, if you don't believe me, just think about, like, any romantic relationship you've ever been in. Even in your marriage, if you're married. Like, think about any romantic relationship you've ever had, okay? Eventually, there comes a day when you experience the brokenness of the other person. When, when their sin, like, affects you. And no matter how much joy that person has brought to you, when they sin against you, it hurts. It's not exclusive to romance either. Any friendship. We're a fallen, broken people. We choose ourselves over others on the regular. And imagine if it wasn't just the external things that people experienced from us. What if they actually knew the internal junk too? the things that actually define whether it was sinful. If you look to anything or anyone other than Jesus to supply you with joy, eventually it will run out. Okay, so Jesus' mom tells Jesus they've run out of wine. And his response to her is, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Really quick, uh, him saying woman, it might sound demeaning, but it's not. There's kind of a sort of debate over whether it was like harsh or whether it wasn't. I tend to believe, like I read a bunch on this, I really do believe it's not. In fact, uh, many scholars would actually say that it's it's like a title of respect. I hate that when I read that, when it says woman, I I immediately think it's like a bad thing. No, like women should be celebrated. They're amazing. So either way, it it was most likely a a sign of a title of respect. And then when he says, my hour has not yet come, Jesus is referring to the hour of his death. He uses this phrase, all throughout the Gospel of John. And each time he uses it, he's referring to his death, his hour, okay? Guys, Jesus knows what his mission is. That's one of the things I'm gonna, yeah. One of the things that blows me away about Jesus is that he knew what his mission was, he knew how gnarly it was, and he did it anyway. It's 
beautiful. His passion, man. So basically, Jesus' mom says, the wine has run out, and Jesus' response is essentially this. Why are you telling me this? It's not my time to die yet. Like, I don't know about you, but like, that's a very odd response to your mom letting you know that wine has run out. Like, I'm not ready to die yet. (laughs) So why does Jesus respond in such an odd way? Well, Jesus was single, right? Single dude. Now, if you're single and you go to a wedding, what do you usually think of? Yeah, dudes, probably, yeah. I believe that you tend to think about your own wedding. I believe you tend to think about, like, will I get married? Someday, like, will I be up there? Like, if so, who's it going to be? And maybe I'm lame, but I remember when I was single, I would go to weddings and I would think about it. Who am I going to marry? Am I going to get married? What's it going to be like? What's the day going to be like? All that stuff, right? Now listen, throughout the scriptures, God continually characterizes himself as the bridegroom. And God's people, you know, the ones who give themselves to him as the bride. So Jesus, right? God in the flesh, he's at this wedding. He's among all these people who are celebrating. Picture it in your mind. He's at a wedding. Everyone's celebrating, right? They're dancing. They're laughing. They're eating. They're drinking the wine. As the rabbis describe it, they're drinking from the cup of joy. They're celebrating. He's at this wedding and he's in the midst of all this. What's happening here is that Jesus is seeing the parallels between this wedding and his coming wedding. He knows that the only way for him to bring the world into that same joy that people at the wedding party are experiencing is through his suffering. His mind is somewhere else when his mom asks him that question. Like, do you see the contrast here? As everybody around him sipping this cup of joy, Jesus is sipping a cup of sorrow, contemplating what's to come for him. He's keenly aware of what it's going to take for him to be united with his bride. It's going to take his blood. Now, we talked about how the Bible, like in the Bible, wine is a symbol for joy, right? But joy is not the only thing that wine symbolizes in the scriptures. When, when we, in just a moment, when Christians celebrate communion with the bread and the wine, what does the wine symbolize? His blood. The blood of Jesus. That's why Jesus responds to his mom the way that he does. He's thinking about what it's going to take for him to to be united with his his bride at his coming wedding. It's going to take his blood. It's not my time to die yet. It's not my time to supply the the wine for my wedding yet. Because remember, whose responsibility is it to supply the wine in an ancient Jewish wedding? The bridegroom. Yeah. But the wine that Jesus will have to supply at his wedding is different. It's his blood. And guys, that's what makes this miracle, this sign, so incredibly beautiful. All right, the final point here, the sign. What is a sign? Verse 11 tells us that this was the first of Jesus' signs, okay? So this miracle of turning water into wine, it wasn't simply a miracle. It was a miracle, but it wasn't simply that. It was a sign, okay? And what do signs do? They point to something. This miracle being a sign means it was meant to point to Jesus as being the one true Messiah, the Savior. 
He did this so people would say, that guy's the Messiah. That guy's the Savior. It's a sign. It points to something, okay? Let's talk about the water jars really quick. <clears throat> there were six of them, right? It says each of them holding 20, or 30 gal- 20 to 30 gallons of water. Guys, that's a lot of flipping water. That's 120, between, between 120 and 180 gallons of water. Now these jars, <clears throat> they're used for purification, right? They were used for ceremonial cleansing. Specifically, <clears throat> Um, they were used like for this ritual hand washing before and after the meal. So before the meal, they'd scrub. After the meal, they'd scrub. It was, ceremony, it was, it was, it was a sign of purification, of cleansing. Everything, about, everything for the Jewish people was clean or unclean. Okay? When you sin, unclean, you need to have those sins atoned for. You need to be cleansed. You tracking with this idea? So that's what those water jugs are for. <clears throat> ritual purifying. Now, regarding the jars, I got another quote for you. I don't have a lot of quotes, but I read a lot this week. So, uh, Regarding the jars, John Piper, uh, author, pastor, uh, wonderful guy, he says this, these jars, these were not used for drinking. They were used for bathing, for purifying. So it seems that Jesus wants to say that this is what my hour will be like, his death, right? I will take the, the purification rituals of Israel, the people of God, and replace them with a decisively new way of purification, namely with my blood. Jesus manifests his glory in this story by giving a sign, an acted out parable of how his own death, his own blood, his hour will be the final, decisive, ultimate purification for sins. There is no ritual anymore for cleansing. There is one way to be clean before God. The glory of Jesus is that he alone, once and for all, made purification for sins. You don't turn to ritual, you turn to Jesus. I love that. You don't turn to ritual, you turn to Jesus. The external does not make you right with the Lord, man. You don't turn to ritual, you turn to Jesus. So Jesus has the jars, right? He has them filled to the brim. And then he turns all that water into wine. Guys, that is a lot of wine. It was a lot of water, but almost even more wine. Like, think about this. I had to, uh, like, you know how it said 20 to 30 gallons, each of those things? Let's just say they're 25 gallons, okay? That's 150 gallons of wine. I couldn't help myself. I had to do the math. Like, how many glasses of wine is that? Because, I mean, people were at the wedding, right? That is 3,840 glasses of wine. Like, you might be saying, why does that matter, Tom? Why are you you geeking out over math? Why are you telling me that? Listen, it's not, Jesus turning that much water into that much wine, it is not him condoning over drinking. I've heard liberal Christians make that argument. It's not him condoning over drinking. Guys, that's a, that's a ridiculous amount of wine for that wedding. No wedding party on earth could drink 150 gallons of wine. Like, not even, clo- not even half. But all that wine that Jesus supplied, what did it symbolize again? His blood. The blood of Jesus is more than enough to cover all of your sins. It, it, it's always enough. It's more than you could ever spiritually drink. It's more than sufficient for even the worst sinner, the too far gone. 
people as messed up as me. Jesus was making a point that no matter the depths of your sin, his blood covers all of it. It's not going to run out. Now, another thing. Like, guys, there's so much depth here, it's crazy. Notice the miracle takes place under Jesus' command, right? But it doesn't take place in Jesus' hands. There were only a few people who even knew that Jesus was responsible for doing this. Do you see who it was? His mom knew, his disciples knew, and who was the other people that knew? The servants, very good. The servants, the ones who obeyed his commands. Jesus included those servants in the miracle. Friends, the same is true for you and me. Jesus invites you into what he is doing. Like, you and I have a role to play in this. Listen to me. If you want to see Jesus work in your life and in the lives of those people around you, do exactly what the servants did at the wedding. Do what he says. Like, obey him. And you will see him in operation in your life and in the lives of the people around you. Jesus kept this miracle pretty secret. Now, remember, only a handful of people at the wedding knew he was responsible for the wine, right? But did you notice who does get credit for the wine, though? The bridegroom. Look back, verse 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He's the guy that's supposed to supply the wine, didn't supply enough, totally dropped the ball, is going to be responsible for this wedding going up in flames. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. The bridegroom gets the credit. Guys, Jesus is so poetic. Like, guys, you and I are the bridegroom in this story. Like, Jesus does the work, yet you and I get the credit. Jesus lives the perfect life in your place that you never could. And when you trust in that, you are credited with his perfection. Guys, and listen, it's perfection alone that saves you from the wrath of God. God is loving, which means he's just, which means that like when, someone, when something terrible happens, like, like, like rape or genocide, he's not going to let it go unpunished. <clears throat> it's perfection alone that saves you from that just wrath. But thankfully, Jesus gives you credit. He gives you his righteousness if you trust in what he's done. It's beautiful. I'm almost done. Actually, I'm going to call the band up now. I'll close with this. So guys, do you see what Jesus providing the wine means? It means that he is the true bridegroom here. Like he's the true provider of wine. He's the true provider of joy. And the wine is his blood. It's the cross. Like that wine, that blood, that cross, it's the greatest source of joy imaginable. We talked about earlier about what do we look to for joy and if we look to anything or anyone other than Jesus to supply us with our joy, it's going to run out. Jesus' blood is the joy that doesn't run out. The cross is the joy that doesn't run out. 
Guys, this is why Jesus' blood means so much to Christians. I remember before I really started following Jesus, I would hear some of the songs and some of the things that Christians would say about blood. And I'm like, these people are crazy. I mean, Jesus went as far to say as like, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh. That sounds crazy. But when you see things from his perspective and you understand the beauty and the joy that the blood is, that's why it means so much to Christians, guys. His blood is the wine that makes us clean. It purifies us, that washes us. His blood is the wine that brings us unending joy. I mean, think about this. If Jesus is the true bridegroom, what does that make you? If you follow Jesus, it makes you his bride. The blood of Jesus shows his devotion and passion for his bride. That's you. Jesus is, right? This is the series that we're in, trying to look at what Jesus is. Jesus is the provider of wine. He alone is the true provider of joy because he alone gave his blood. That's what makes this first sign, this first miracle so incredibly beautiful and so filled with depth. Jesus was thinking about his wedding. When his mom says the wine's gone, he says, I'm not ready to die yet. From the beginning of his ministry to the end of his life, to his, ascension, to his resurrection and his ascension, do you know what was on his mind? Do you know what he was thinking about? He was thinking about providing you joy. That's crazy. It's beautiful. Let me pray for us. Would you stand if you're able? Jesus, I'm not even close to being anything like you. I try to be, and you are like sanctifying me. You're you're making me a little bit more like you. But when I think about this wedding that you were at, and I think about you knowing what's ahead of you, and yet embracing that and running at it, running towards it, like, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't open up my veins. I might think theoretically I would, but in the moment I just know it would be it would be really it would be different. I pray that this morning each of us would receive that deep and beautiful love that the God of the universe he thinks about us. If you're in this room, you need to know he thinks about you. I think about a wedding, God, and I think about the outcome of a wedding. I think about two becoming one and how beautiful that is. And I pray for anybody in the room who's kind of been like dating Jesus, that they'd be united with him today. Two becoming one. Them being in Christ and Christ being in them. 
Jesus, you are the bridegroom that our hearts long for, the lover of our soul. I pray that each, each man and woman in this room would give, we would give ourselves to you, all of us. You're trustworthy, you're good. I pray for this church, I pray for deep intimacy between each of us and you. Like I pray the two would become one, that we wouldn't hold back, that we'd stop idolizing the approval of people and what they think about us, even people in this room, and we would embrace the lover of our soul who's the true provider of the wine, who's the true provider of the joy because only Jesus gives us his blood. That's his devotion, that's his passion. Help us to receive that, not just in our minds, help our hearts to grab a hold of it. We love you, God, amen.